Welcome back to Out to Lunch, the podcast where fascinating people open up to me over a good meal. Today it's dinner time for me in London and lunchtime for my guest in LA. It's star of The Wire and the John Wick movies, Lance Reddick. Like I wanted to be Einstein, I wanted to be Beethoven. I couldn't have thought of anything more silly than wanting to be uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Darling, you'd make a fabulous Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> now, Lance had a bit of trouble his end with the internet, so the audio quality struggles at times, but do stay with us. I promise you it's worth it. Hello, Lance, over there in Los Angeles. Has your food turned up? It has. Has it now? I have to ask you a question, first of all, before we actually get to the food. So I was doing a lot of research, and this is not all going to be about the wire, but I went looking, uh, (laughs) and this isn't a food podcast, but food is a thing. And there's a particular article online about the top food scenes in the wire. And it goes through all the great food scenes that are in the wire involving all the characters. Cedric Daniels does not get one of them. Oh, and and it, and it struck me looking at you, but of course, because Cedric Daniels doesn't eat; he lives on air. Oh well, you know it's funny because uh, recently I went back and I was I was actually looking at clip from the pilot, and I I literally could not believe how skinny I was. I I, I couldn't believe it. You are, yeah, you're skinny. I was I went back and watched the first episode. For better or worse, that was about forty five pounds ago. So. Um, <laughs> Hello, friend, is all I can say. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm kind of reassured to know that, you know, time moves on. But for all of us in middle age, it's good to know that these things happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those I try. I, I've just given up. Uh, unless I'm willing to take steroids and um, do all kinds of stuff that's going to mess up my back, that's not happening anymore. Excellent. Um, although you say you've given up. So your order has come from a, a place called Tender Greens. Do you want to, is your order with you? Is it nearby? It is right here. So I, I, I was waiting for you before I opened it. Oh, you're a very well-dragged-up man. Um, <laughs> I was really intrigued that you asked for this because I know a bit about Tender Greens. It's almost a cult over there, isn't it? The people who love Tender Greens adore it. Oh, I don't. I mean, I I just like it because it's 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 healthy and it's easy. But I'll tell you what I got you according to your desires, which is got the salmon with the kale oh. with the roasted garlic vinaigrette, seasonal veggies. I've got you too much because I'm a Jewish mother. Um, brown rice, uh, mint lemonade, double chocolate chunk cookies. It's all there in the bag at your side. And while you're getting that, I'll explain that over here, we didn't have anything like tender green. So I've gone for Turkish. So I've got grilled prawns. It's all from a place called FM Mangle. And uh, I've got their grilled prawns and I've got some of their aubergine dip and salad and rice. And, it, you know, it'll, we'll basically be eating the same thing. Um, I have to ask you about John Wick. When that script landed, I, in the original, the first film, it's a, a very striking but small part. Um, yes. But it has become, uh, you know, you play the concierge of the Continental, uh, Sharon. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant part. And it has become a vital part of the whole John Wick, well, trilogy now. My suspicion is there'll be another one. Could you see that coming? Did you, did you recognise what the possibilities were with this part when it came your way? Yes and no. So I recognized how, how cool a role it was um, because when I read the script, I first of all, I thought for what the genre is, which is basically the mild-mannered guy is, 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 is wronged and then he goes on a killing spree and you find out that he's the baddest cat in the universe. We've seen that story many, 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 many times. But I had never seen it told like that. And I thought that it was so well-crafted. And here was a character that, the kind of character that I never get to play I thought, what the heck? Go to New York for a couple of days, do this cool movie, and you know, I, ha- I have a great experience, and that's the end of it. 
I thought this was gonna movie was gonna come and go, and nobody was gonna see it. Next thing I know, it's number one at the box office. I'm like, what? <laughs> and they're making a sequel. Yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert: if you haven't seen John Wick Three: Parabellum, was it a joy when you got that script and saw, oh, I get to get the gun out? Yes, it was. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's, it's so funny because um, when John Wick Two came along, I didn't want to do it. I read it, and I'm like, ah, I don't have anything to do. I don't want to just be here and not have anything to do again. It was cool not having anything the last time because what I didn't have to do was cool. But this, now it's just more the same. I don't want to do that. So my agent, she she kind of laughed at me and said, I understand, Lance, and you have to come on. You, you, you come on. You have to be, you have to do this. I remember my first day on set, you know, when I when I walked up to Chad, the director, uh, he asked me how I was doing. I said, I'm good. I said it was one of those things sometimes I I speak without thinking. So the first thing out of my mouth was, well, I wish I had more to do. And he said, don't worry, you'll have more in the third one. I'm like, the third one? Man, you don't even know this, this man. The third one, yeah. And people in Hollywood say they kind of shit all the time. Well, whatever, man. But anyway, let me just do my job here and have a good time. Next thing I know, I get a call from my agent about the third movie when they say they want to send me for gun training. I'm like, gun training? So <laughs> I start going for gun training, and I'm like, wait a second, guys. <laughs> Can I at least see a script? I mean, I know it's assumed I'm going to say yes, but I'd like to read what I'm saying yes to. And they say, okay, we'll get you something. <laughs> so they, they sent me some pages with my stuff in it. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. So, yeah, I was really excited about that. It has to be said, is it not remarkable that you got to that point in your career, having played any number of crackheads, senior policemen, the FBI guy in, the, uh, in Fringe, and only then were you sent for gun training? You'd never been sent before? You'd never had to pull a no, weapon? I did a film called The Guest years ago, which ended up being a cult hit. And I played um, a special forces guy. I had, <laughs> so it's a small, independent film. I had never had gun training before. This is after Fringe and The Wire. So after 10 years of playing a, <laughs> a cop. And they sent me for one hour of gun training. So in order to get another hour, I had to pay for it myself. And then when I got on set, I realized that the gun I trained with wasn't even the kind of gun I was using. So I... <laughs> <laughs> Let me go all the way back. When you were growing up in Baltimore, some, some time ago, when you were a kid in Baltimore, what, what was home life like? Back when there was actually a middle, middle class, that's pretty much where we were. So my dad was a social studies and English teacher. And my mother taught instrumental music. And after they got married, my dad, he went to night school and got his, uh, his law degree. Um, and then he started practicing law. The, the way my dad tells, tells me the story is that he actually never intended to practice law. He just wanted to see if he could do it. He just wanted to see if he could pass the exams. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to see if he could get through law school. And then he just took the bar to see if he could pass it. And he passed it the first time. And the music side, your mom was a, a music teacher. You, yeah. it, it wasn't just a passing thing with you. You played piano properly. When I was a very little kid, uh, I used to sit at the piano and I would bang the piano pretending I was playing. And at a certain point, my mother had had enough. So she said, you can't do that anymore. If you want to play the piano, you have to take lessons. And, and uh, before I knew it, I just got in the habit of going every week and I liked it. So I kept studying and I, I, I took to music early. But so you got the music thing going on and you start acting... What, when you're in elementary school, when you're in college? When does that happen? Well, I did a play my senior year in high school. 
So I kind of got the bug, you know? And so when I, when I went to college my first year, the first thing I did was I auditioned for a play. So, so there you are, you dropped physics to study composition. Yeah. But were you thinking, but what I really want to do is act? And did you express this to your parents? Never in my wildest dreams did I think I wanted to act as, as, as a profession. That came much later in life. So first of all, I even avoided going to applying to music school at first, even though that's what I grew up doing. Because and for some, just because I had an affinity, always had an affinity for math and I like calculus, I was kind of obsessed with Einstein. So I majored in physics. But as soon as I got in the lab, I realized, man, I'm, I mean, it's like, it's like watching paint dry. I just don't fucking want to do this. Excuse me. <laughs> no, you can swear on this podcast, Lance. Oh, you, you can. can oh, great, great, great. Oh, you can fucking so, swear on this podcast. So I applied as a composition major and transferred to Eastman next year. Trying to get myself to write classical music was like pulling teeth. But because of the environment that I grew up in, there was um, the stigma around popular music that it wasn't real music somehow. Ah. And so, you know, I just finally reached the point where I got to start thinking for myself and that's what I want to do. So I left, I left music school to pursue that. And I got married straight out of school. You married very young, I know. And, yeah. um, and also you became a, a father pretty quickly as well, didn't you? Well, it was, she was born almost exactly two years after we got married. Which means, you know, the dreams of being a rock star. This isn't the totally cool image. You're married with a child and you're trying to be a... And did you join any bands? Were you front No, no. I auditioned for a couple. I just wasn't good at that stuff. I, I was just not good at that stuff at all because I'm not terribly... Um, it's, it's, it's funny because I've been a, a fairly successful actor and on social media, I'm, I'm kind of a goof. But um, especially back in then, I was just so shy and kind of socially awkward that, yeah, that wasn't going to work out for me. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very aware. I think you're being polite and refusing to eat in front of me. Oh, uh, but... <laughs> I, you know what? When I start talking, I forget. <laughs> Famously, you, you, you take up an enormous number of jobs. You're a singing waiter for a while. You know. well, at the time, I was working. So, and this leads to how I started acting. About a year after my daughter was born, I was working basically three jobs. I was working as a singing waiter on lunch and dinner cruises. And so I'm doing that. I was also delivering newspapers. And then on weekends, I was also delivering pizzas and subs. I worked at a pizza place. And so those are my, those are my three jobs. You and, had a background one, in, the, in the hospitality industry. I think it's fair. Yeah. <laughs> I had a, a basically a double shift of waiting tables. And I went straight from that to a double shift of delivering newspapers. And I delivered very uh, heavy bundles uh, to the financial district, downtown Boston. So I just went to lift a bundle to, to toss it, and I felt something in my back go. And I, I thought, wow, that's weird. So um, I went to lift another one, and it still hurt. I was 27. And I thought, well, I worked out every day, and I was always working on sleep deprivation, and I was always working on adrenaline. So I thought, well, I'll just work it out, you know, work, work through it when I work out tomorrow. And each day it got worse and worse, and about two weeks later, one day I got up and I, I couldn't get out of bed. So... You know, while I was convalescing and worrying about money, I started realizing that, you know, it gave me time to do some soul searching. I started realizing that if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And so I know this sounds absolutely crazy, but I thought, well, how can I think outside the box? I know I don't have any, I don't have any contacts. I don't have any money. I know I can sing and I know I can act. So let me try that. So I just opened up the local paper and I started, it was called the Boston Phoenix, which is their version of the Village Voice. And I just started going on uh, auditions. I went to on two th musical theater auditions. Um, here's a guy with a nice voice auditioning against people who are singers. So I realized very quickly that, that I was not going to make it there. And then I started going on straight acting auditions and just getting cast and getting cast and getting cast. I mean, did it take you by surprise? Because you had no training. But it was one of those things where I knew I had talent. I just, it just didn't, it didn't, 
it never registered for me because I thought being an actor was something was a silly thing to want to be. So it wasn't like I never put any attention on it. Do you know what I mean? Well, so it wasn't as serious as being Einstein or Shostakovich. No, 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 <laughs> no. I couldn't have thought of a more like I wanted to be Einstein. I wanted to be Beethoven. I couldn't have thought of anything more silly than wanting to be uh, Elizabeth Taylor. I, I just thought, you know, I, I, that's fine for me as an audience member, but as, as as a legacy in life, I don't want to do that. That's that's what it. Darling, you'd make a fabulous Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> But the thing about it is, as I as I did it, as I kept getting cast in local non-equity theater, I started realizing that I just loved it. I started out being very arrogant about not thinking that I needed training, but the bigger my roles got, the more I realized that my performances were hit or miss depending on how good the script was and how good the director was. And so on, on a lark, which is its own story, I ended up applying to the drama school at Yale and I got in. Did you feel a need to take on any of the great classical roles, the Shakespearean roles, or did that not strike you as a thing that was necessary? Well, I've loved Shakespeare since I was a teenager. I I just, I always had an affinity for Shakespeare. Uh, I know it sounds cliche because I'm black, but one of my dreams is to do do a really great film version of Othello. I have this strong feeling that over the past few years, decades, it's part, you know, it's a conversation that that role is one that needs to be taken back by actors yeah. of color. <laughs> when you say that, the first thing that comes to my mind is that is that awful performance of uh, Olivier's. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, oh, if you God. haven't seen Laurence Olivier play Othello, don't. <laughs> well, I, I hesitate to say this because um, Olivier is, he is like the legend of the theater. But, you know, not having ever seen him on stage, I only know him from his work on film. But to me, his first great performance on film and I know people are going to, you know, cause I'm not saying I'm not saying Hamlet and I'm not saying Henry V. But to me, his first great performance on film was The Entertainer. Oh, yeah. OK. No, yeah, that, I, I, I thought he was great. I, <laughs> yeah. I was worrying for a moment you were going to say The Marathon Man and I was just sort of slightly terrified. <laughs> no, no, I actually hate me if you want, but I actually like his performance in that. <laughs> All right. Here's another one then. What about in The Jazz Singer with Neil Diamond playing? I've never seen that film. Now, <laughs> uh, that, that, that's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Slow Sunday afternoon, get in there and prepare yourself for Olivier playing an old Jewish guy ripping his clothes, shouting, you're dead to me. (laughs) Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Also from something else. How did we get here? With Claudia Winkleman and Professor Tanya Byron. 
In these in-depth one-on-one therapy sessions, we dig deep into personal stories with fascinating and emotional revelations. A passionate, insightful, and moving experience with clear outcomes to each episode. He is as anxious about attachment with you as you are with him. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's crazy, isn't it? Oh, that's a weird feeling. Wait, so... Oh, God. Don't you just feel like, whoa, why didn't I know that all along? Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps. You start to get cast, and you start to get cast in some big roles. I'm quite interested. You, you know, obviously, it got you to the wire. But, um, David Simon, who created the wire, uh, also cast you in a couple of other things before that. I, I was wondering whether the Baltimore connection was important. Do you think, or was it completely irrelevant? The fact that you'd grown up in Baltimore. It was completely coincidental. Right. Yeah. As a matter of fact, because I was living in New York at the time, and I hadn't lived in Baltimore since I was 18. David's first uh, big TV thing was The Corner, which uh, and basically they hung out on a drug corner for a year and a half and wrote about the people. And he actually met Ed, Ed Burns, who, uh, who if people who don't know, is the co-creator of The Wire. And a lot of The Wire is based on Ed's, Ed's um, experience as a homicide detective and then later as a, a junior high school teacher. Uh, just a funny story about the whole Baltimore thing. Because in the, in the corner, I play a, a crackhead, Anthony Hemingway, who is now uh, a big television director in the United States. But at the time, he was the first AD. Right. Remember, he was 24 years old. And he, he came up to me after seeing, and they were setting up for a different shot. And he asked me where I was from. And I said, Baltimore. And he started to laugh. And I said, well, what's so funny? He said, well, because <laughs> I, I was watching you act, and I was listening to your accent. And I was thinking, man, he's a good actor. He's got this Baltimore thing down. <laughs> When you went through all of these roles, you get, you get to The Wire, and that is a very mixed cast. I mean, there's a lot of people of colour on that set. Yeah. Did that give you an impression that it wasn't that difficult for a black guy to get a good part in TV? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, it's it's going to sound counterintuitive based on the fact that I was working from the day I got out of school, and I, I, I pretty much always worked. But from the time I got out of school, it became clear that there was a gap between what was available for me and what was available for my white counterparts. Just blatantly obvious to you. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, film and television, it's always, particularly, you know, every pilot season, when they're casting pilots for new television shows, and every pilot season, you know, I have my white counterparts talking about being so busy that they couldn't keep up with all the auditions. If I had an audition a week, that was a lot. And it was always the black role. It was always the friend. It was always the boss. It was always the, the, the funny black guy. Or if it was, and if it was a white comedy, it was the black guy and he was the person that didn't get to be funny. So on the one hand, it was that. But on the other hand, there was an explosion of black, it, you know, the fact that I came out of drama school in 1994, there was an explosion of black talent in Hollywood. And I, I, you know, in, in my opinion, there are three things that contributed, well, maybe four things that contributed to that. Part of it was, it was the wake of the 80s. So between Spike Lee and, and hip hop had become so mainstream. And the fact that Eddie Murphy was the first huge crossover mainstream star, you know, even because not even Sidney Poitier, who was, a, who was the, uh, the first matinee, black matinee idol, he was always still always considered a black actor. Whereas Eddie, Eddie was just a uh, huge, I mean, basically in terms of just popularity in the late 80s, it was Eddie Murphy and Tom Cruise and everybody else. <laughs> and then the other thing that happened in the 90s was, was the proliferation of more networks. And um, 
something that they did to try to get viewers rather than trying to compete for quote unquote mainstream white viewership. They all know that the black community is underserved. So they did something which we call the urban strategy. So they did a lot of black programming. Did you see that as a positive or as a kind of classic ghettoization? At the time, I didn't think about it because a lot of this is, is the way I've thought about it subsequently. Yeah. Because and, and the reason I really started to think about it hard was because of the way the wire was treated and what happened in the, in the wake in terms of opportunity. So at the time, to me, it was just it was just there was work. I mean, we we have to talk about that. So you, you get the script for The Wire, yeah, which was amazingly written. It did manage to keep getting renewed series after series, so there would be long hiatus. Yes. And it didn't win any awards, did it? It almost got nominated for no awards. Do you want to tell me why you think that is? Racism, pure and simple. Let me give an example. First of all, we almost got canceled twice. We had an 11-month hiatus between the third and the fourth season. And we were all auditioning for pilots in second position in case The Wire didn't come back. What does, that, what does that mean if you're auditioning in second position? In second position means that if they like you and they're willing to offer you the role in a pilot for the series, they have to understand that if The Wire comes back, you're You'll not go to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so I remember I, I, I had a meeting through a music video. <laughs> I met this manager who's black and he and I were talking about The Wire. And he said, you know what, Lance? I don't know what it is, but I cannot get my white colleagues to watch that show. And I'm like, really? He said, yeah. Yeah. I'm slightly speechless here. Uh, uh, they wouldn't watch it. Everybody should have been watching it because we were the lead into The Sopranos. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but I really think that it was, you turn it on, there's a bunch of black people running around, and you got to pay up close attention because it's so complexly written. Ugh, I don't want to do that. I, I really think it was that, that simple. There is an amazing um, speech that David Simon gives at one point in which he says that the brilliant thing about The, the Wire was it became whatever any political entity wanted it to be. So the conservatives saw it as a condemnation of liberal, you know, Democrat governance. The Democrats saw it as proof that people were being left behind. The libertarians saw it as an argument for legalising drugs. It, it had so many layers to it, according to, to Simon, that, it, you know, it sat there alone almost as a polemical piece, but nobody was really sure what it was saying. Wow. You know, first of all, I've never heard that quote. That's never occurred to me. When you saw that first script, did you think this is something different? I mean, to be fair, you know, you played a few black cops. At that point, at that point, uh, I hadn't. But uh, what I was more known for uh, between the corner and my work on Oz was, even though I played a cop in Oz, was, was playing drug addicts. So they actually wouldn't see me for Daniels at first. They saw me for Buck, they saw me for Bunk three times. My third audition was with David and Ed and uh, the director. And uh, David asked me to read Bubbles. He asked me to co-read Bubbles. And our ex actually ended up being second choice for Bubbles. And at what point did they decide that you were the man for Daniels? Well, they were trying to play the name game with Daniels. And I, I think they couldn't find what they were looking for. So then after, after I, I, I wasn't cast as Bubbles, then weeks later, I went in an audition for Daniels. And then about a week later, I was told they passed on me for Daniels. So I thought it was, I thought it was a dead issue. And about two or three weeks later, I get a call from my agent and I, I, I called him back. He said, Lance, The Wire, you got it. I was like, The Wire? Well, what role? He said, Daniels. And it was, it was like, it's, the only, it's one of the only times in my life where I wondered if I was dreaming. Because I, I knew it was, I was experiencing a before and after moment. You knew that it was going to make a difference. Well, 
because it's the uh, to this day it's the only pilot script I've ever read it in, in my entire career that I felt like I have to be on the show because at the time the other thing to remember is at least for American actors at the time in terms of prestige theater and film was it TV was something you did for money um, but if you got stuck in TV like that was not you know no matter how much money you made you weren't cons- it was just so it's funny because now I'm an international television star <laughs> you know my third series later but I certainly didn't want to. I never imagined I'd love being on a television series. And when I read that script, I thought, this is so good, I have to be part of it. This is almost a mischievous question, but I'm genuinely interested in the answer. What is your feeling, or what was your feeling then, about a British actor like Idris Elba coming across, you know, being cast into that role of a Baltimore drug kingpin? Well, that was before it was one of Hollywood's go-to things. (laughs) Because now I have tremendous resentment about it. But at the time, and here's the thing about Idris. Yeah. So I remember when we were shoot, when we were, uh, we had our first read through for the pilot. So we're all in Baltimore and we go down to this, um, to the offices. And I see Idris talking to Dominic Lombardozzi and Seth Gilliam, the guys who played uh, Herc and Carver. And I'm, I'm, I'm watching his body language and I'm watching him with those guys. And I'm, I'm like, wow, this guy, he's from the South Bronx. I mean, he's just a street. So we do the read through. We do the meet and greet after the read through. So I'm at the elevator waiting to go downstairs to go, go home. So Idris is standing next to me. So just to make conversation, I turn to him, I said, Idris, where are you from? And he stops and this big <laughs> smile comes on his face. And, he, and I can't remember if he said East London or South London. East London, mate, East London. And in and, and, and his British accent, I was like, because he came, he came, he, he was speaking an American accent the whole time. So I was like, what? So, I mean, as an actor, how are you not going to be kind of, I, I, I had to give it up. I mean, he was, <laughs> I mean, he was that good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you, you alluded to it, so we're going to have to go there. Now you say, is it an issue? Yes. Well, is it an issue? I, I, I'm not going to speak for all black actors. I'm just going to speak for myself. Yeah, you're, you're not required to take on that. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, yes, it's an issue. <laughs> and, and But some sometimes it depends on how good they, because nothing bothers me more than a British actor who's cast in a role and they don't do the accent well, or they do a great American accent and their and their performance sucks. Because then I'm like, well, you know, we just went through the 90s where we were losing roles to freaking hip hop stars who can't act. Now we got to lose them to British actors? What the fuck, man? And we, and you know, it was always like the, there's one, full, one, one role for us for every 10 roles for the white people. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I was like, what the fuck, man? You know what I mean? So, so that bothers me. Have you have you had the conversation with any of your colleagues, you know, British actors? Have you have you ever said, you know, this is problematic? Uh, I've had the conversation with my American black actor friends, sure. <laughs> uh, but no, no. And also, I mean, I'm not I'm not good friends with a lot of British actors. I haven't spoken to Idris in years. And he still does occasionally get those parts. As I've gotten older, I've started to realize that there are there's the skill set of being a great actor. And there's a skill set of being a great star. And they don't necessarily have anything to do with each other. Um, and when they dovetail, it's amazing to see. Like Denzel has both things. Denzel Washington. Yeah, yeah, in my opinion. But with Idris, and it's something that I didn't understand until I was talking to somebody. It was Jamie Hector. Jamie Hector is a good friend of mine. He asked Idris for advice when they were on the set of The Wire. And he said, Idris said to him, Never let people call you by your character. Make sure people always know your name. And when he told me that years ago, I thought, well, okay. But now I get it. He's like, 
you know, I'm establishing the brand that is Idris Elba because that gives me leverage to have the artistic freedom and power that I want in order to do the kind of work that I want. And I feel like Idris, in addition to being a really gifted actor and, and, and incredible, I mean, he's, he's just, he just has incredible charisma, but he really understands the mentality and the business of being a star. And so I feel like that's just, that's important. Uh, I have to ask you at this point, as we are called out, out to lunch or in for lunch, how was your salmon? Oh, Sam is good. It's good. <laughs> the greens. I keep forgetting. I keep forgetting to eat. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, we're having, you know, we're having a chat. That's that's the way it's meant to be. I just, I just like to keep on brand and remind people that we're here for lunch. You're having lunch. I'm having dinner. I've actually eaten my king prawn, so we're very good indeed. If you're one of those people who spends hours in the kitchen knocking out culinary masterpieces, you'll want to be properly dressed for it. I know I do. Or perhaps you just want to convince your friends you're that sort of person without going to all the trouble of actually cooking. Well, now you can. How, you ask? By wearing the terrific official Logotastic Out to Lunch apron, of course, in gorgeous durable denim. It's so good, you'll want to go out in it. And if you do go out, let's face it, it's tough out there, so take your favourite podcast with you in the sturdy Out to Lunch Travel Cup, the perfect receptacle for your hot beverage of choice. See, not only will our lunch lubricated chats warm your ears, we'll also warm the rest of you. And when you get home and you've washed your Out to Lunch Travel Cup, try it with the out-to-lunch tea towel. So soft, you'll be snuggling up with it at bedtime. To see the range of merch and catch them all, head to outtolunch.backstreetmerch.com. That's outtolunch, all one word, dot backstreetmerch, all one word, dot com. Want to spend even more time with me? The paperback of my latest book, My Last Supper, is out now. Join me as I explore the landscape of our last meals on Earth, available from all good bookshops and a few bad ones too. But for now, let's go back out to lunch. On a, um, a slightly darker note, and I have to go here because, you know, we are talking at a point in, you're still roughly in lockdown in Los Angeles, I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there, there's high rates, but a lot has been going on during this time. Black Lives Matter and the killing of Mr. Floyd happened during this period. Does it feel like a moment that will change things? Wow. When I, when I look at kind of, I can't remember the name of the song, but it's song from Sting's second solo album. Um, Nothing like the sun. Um, he said, um, the written history of the catalog of crime is sorted in the powerful, the architects of time. I just feel like it might. You know, when I look out at, at how many people, I mean, there are Trump supporters who are literally starting fights with people in stores because they're asked to wear a mask. And that's, I mean, it's not, they're not a few isolated incidents or counter protesters, you know, showing up with, uh, a bunch of white people showing up armed. So there's the pressure that protests can, can put on government to change. But I think that it only changes, it's, it's, it's kind of that, that old saying, um, power never gives up anything without struggle and never has and never will. I think Frederick Douglass said something like that. It's a terrible paraphrase. Um, I, just, I just, I'm hopeful and I'm skeptical. We all sit here, you know, watching America and hoping and praying for a different result in November um, and a, a change in president. Uh, I, even that, I mean, it's not a done a done deal, is it? But, but and even if there, even if there's a change in president, the best that we can hope for is back to the status quo system. Uh, of course, people are going to uh, accuse me of of, of being a uh, a left wing nut, 
um, because of my support of Bernie Sanders. But the fact that the Democratic Party was so in the primaries, they would do, I mean, when it looked like he could actually win the nomination, they were willing to do anything. They would rather have Trump again than Bernie Sanders. To me, that this is like, we're going to go hopefully defeat Trump so we can go to the people who would rather have Trump than a progressive who believes in, uh, who's a democratic socialist. Like, I, I mean, the system is so fundamentally broken that I don't even know where to start. And I don't know that all the protesting in the world is going to change it. When you look back on the guy who put his back out in Boston, throwing newspapers around, I feel like I should apologise for my, you know, my main career as a newspaper man. Um, are you, are you surprised at where you've got to? Are you proud? What's it, what, what's the emotion? Wow, um, wow, this is this is a tricky one. Uh, you actually finally caught me off guard. <laughs> uh, wow. Okay, so there's two answers to this question. So, um, three. So just in terms of being an actor, because I never in my life imagined that I'd be an actor, I'm surprised. I never thought this is where I'd be at this point in my life. Once I decided to be an actor, and I kind of took the measure of, of, you know, I weighed what I perceived my talent to be against how hard I was willing to work to master my craft, to be honest, I always expected to be successful. The hardest part was for me, was thinking that I would somehow overcome race and that eventually I would just be thought of as an actor. And then, and so what was difficult was as a journeyman actor who wasn't thinking about any, any of the business or the politics of being star, a star, who just thought, just keep doing great work and it'll come. The fact that um, my career has constantly been one of, uh, of limits and exceptions has been exhausting. And when I really look at my life, I'm lucky as fuck. <laughs> Those are three answers. And I see yeah. all of them. They stand proud alongside each other with, you know, yeah. they can all exist in the same universe. Yeah. Lance, it's been a, a delight, even allowing for, a, you know, we'll, we'll probably say there were tech issues along the way, but allowing for those. Yes. <laughs> it, it has been an absolute delight to talk to you. Um, all, all that remains me, really, is to say, Lance Reddick, thank you for staying in for lunch with me. It's been an absolute joy. The feeling's mutual, absolutely. Thank you. Lance Reddick, ladies and gentlemen, and what a fabulous interviewee he is too. I hope you enjoyed that lunch as much as I did. And let's hope that the Othello opportunity which Lance is so craving comes his way soon. Don't forget to get your Out to Lunch merch, available now from the link in the show synopsis, and do review and share us to it. It all counts. Out to Lunch is a something else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Jemima Rathbone. The producer is Lena Reem and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, the tallest man in showbiz, TV legend, pointless presenter, and now novelist, it's Richard Osman. Be careful saying, Do you want me to do a line at some point? They'll edit that. <laughs> That's that. all it will be. I'll use that as the trailer. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to US News and World Report, we're the 25th top paying career. Make an impact as a fact seeker and a truth teller. 
Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.